Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview I did with Emiko Jean. She's a young adult author, and we talk about her new book, Tokyo Ever After, which is like the Princess Diaries with a Japanese spin. I mean, do you really need to tell me more about it? Actually, you do, because um, she does a great job explaining it, and the book is so fun. We talk about... Um, the importance of seeing oneself in books, you know, like Emiko is Japanese American, her character is Japanese American, and she didn't really grow up with seeing Japanese princesses in mainstream media. We talk about the royal imperial family of Japan um, and what it was like having Tokyo Ever After selected for Reese Witherspoon's book club, which is very exciting. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. For our library friends, hi library friends, don't forget, Digipalooza is coming up in August. Um, there is still time to register at digipalooza.com. We have a great program with tracks for all of our library partners, including Public Library, K-12, and academic and corporate libraries. So I think that's it. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, which is an interview with Emiko Jean on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Jill, and my guest today is young adult writer Emiko. Emiko is the author of Will Never Be Apart, An Empress of All Seasons. Her latest book is Tokyo Ever After. Emiko, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Tokyo Ever After? Sure. So Tokyo Ever After is all about uh, Japanese-American teen Azumi Tanaka. She lives in a small... Uh, uh, Northern California, mostly white town with her single mom. And although Izumi has a really great relationship with her mom, she does uh, long to find out who her dad is and also to connect uh, with her culture. Um, and through a series of very fortunate events, Izumi ends up learning that her father is the crown prince of Japan. And this launches her on a journey to, uh, to go to the country that she's always dreamed of and meet the father that she's never known. One thing I love about Tokyo Ever After is that you take this very sort of classic secretly a royal trope, but you add in this really wonderful and important extra layer of that search for cultural identity that she goes through. Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, inspired by my own journey um, of finding my cultural identity and never feeling Japanese enough. Um, and so, you know, Azumi kind of goes, undertakes this whole character arc that um, I kind of wanted as a teen. You probably, I mean, didn't have necessarily grown up really with any Japanese princesses in mainstream media <laughs> that you would have seen, right? <laughs> no, yeah, and that's the thing too is, um, you know, representation is so important. And growing up, I had never read a book that featured a Japanese protagonist. I had never read a book that was by a Japanese American author. And, you know, fairy tales are so big too, especially for young girls. 
And I had never even seen a fairy tale that featured that featured a um, a Japanese American, let alone even an Asian American. Um, and you know that that was kind of the inspiration for this book was to you know place myself in the stories uh, that I love to read about and I always wanted to be a part of. Um, the Imperial House of Japan, which you know she finds herself in, is said to be the oldest continuous hereditary monarchy in the world. Was there any pressure, you know, when you were sort of like fictionalizing them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, there was pressure from the outside of the story. I was, I was kind of thinking, you know, should I write this? Can I write this? This is a real, you know, family with a, a real history. Um, but I wanted, you know, Azumi's journey journey to feel as close to reality as possible, if that makes sense. So it always had to be Japan. It always had to be the imperial family. And I think the way that I bridged that was I created a separate lineage. So there are some historical events that are the same, but it's a totally different imperial family. Yeah, it sort of breaks off from the, the real exactly. history. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, because this family, the Imperial family goes back so far, I'm curious what your research process was like and how you decided what struggle aspects to maintain and what to kind of break away from. Yeah. So um, I kept most of the folklore and um, the origin story of the Imperial family, which was that they are, the first emperor was a descendant from the sun goddess. Um, and so I kept that because I felt like that was just a really important cultural detail and we couldn't lose that. Um, and what it really breaks away from is probably the, I mean, if you were going to have to delineate it, it would have to be like in the last century of the imperial family. And that's where I started to create um, the own, you know, the, its own family tree. So I replaced certain emperors with other emperors, um, stuff like that, if that makes sense. That does, absolutely. Were there any fun facts or surprises you discovered while doing research? Yeah, I, I was surprised by how regimented the Imperial family is. I think there is, and don't quote me on this number, so I'm gonna approximate, but the emperor has around 1500 events a year. And so their schedules are very, very rigid and they're not afforded many of the freedoms uh, that we are. I read in a book um, that if they, if one of the princesses wants a book uh, from a, the library or a bookstore, it's brought to her and they, they don't really leave their mm. property in, in Tokyo. Um, they don't carry any cash. They don't have surnames, uh, which is so fascinating to me. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, there's only 365 days in a year. Like, how I, know, I, was, <laughs> I was trying to do the math while we were chatting in my head of like how many events average per day, but it's a lot. It's That's tiring. a lot. <laughs> and now we'll take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. Ah, books, the smell, the mood, the vibe. When's the last time you finished one? If it's been a while, you're not alone. Start a better reading habit with Literati, a book subscription service that gives you access 
to exclusive book clubs led by the world's most inspiring people. Whether you're enjoying beach reads with Ellen Hildebrand or exploring mythic realms with Joseph Campbell scholars, you'll find brilliant insights on the Literati app. All book club members can shop the entire Literati library at discounts that are so steep they look like cliffhangers, with many books over 50% off. Move freely between clubs or use the standard membership to access everything and choose the books you want delivered. Reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your free trial at literati.com slash booknerds. Head to literati.com slash booknerds to learn more and read more with Literati. That's literati.com slash booknerds. Now, um, we should say that Tokyo Ever After was picked as Reese Witherspoon's 2021 YA pick for her book club that is very exciting very exciting well like what was that like getting the call and just finding all of that out yeah so um I actually heard about it three or four months prior to uh publication um and so I had to sit on the news for a long time uh because the news uh uh the news went up the same day that the book published Um, And I got an email from my editor saying that it had been chosen. And I guess it had been uh, in the running for a while, but nobody told me because they, I think they didn't want to disappoint me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that I understand that. And I actually appreciate it very much. Um, But one interesting thing is that the original pub date for this book was May 25th and um, and the, the book club asked if we could push it up to May 18th so that we did more of a mid-month uh, mm-hmm. review and pick. And so we kind of scrambled, or I didn't scramble, but the publishing team scrambled <laughs> um, to move up the pub date and make sure print, you know books were printed on time and they had that beautiful sticker on it. Um, but it all worked out in the end. It did. Yeah, that uh, that's a big secret to keep for... I mean, I'm sure you told like family and stuff, but like, that's a big secret to keep. And then when you're like, oh, my book is mysteriously getting published a week early, but I can't tell you why. (laughs) I feel like writers are notorious for being like, I have news or I have good news, but I can't tell you for six more months to a year. (laughs) We kind of always hint at it. We're also, I am at least highly suspicious. So I told my part, I told my husband um, about the book club and then I didn't tell anyone else um because it was just it felt all felt so surreal so I wasn't I didn't even believe it until like the day it was announced I mean I think that's entirely fair right like you don't want to like so things could happen especially if there's like three or four months that you're waiting who knows um you know you mentioned the sticker on the cover I have to say this is one of my favorite covers that I have ever seen it's so good like you whoever designed your cover did an incredible job they did an amazing job. We knew from the beginning with conversations with my editor and publisher that um, we really wanted to feature a Japanese American girl on the cover. That was so important. Um, and so knowing that we kind of started to bat around ideas and I sent over kind of a list of all things Japanese as kind of inspiration points and um, origami was listed on there. Mm-hmm. and someone brought up, well, what about paper cutouts? And from there, you know, it just, 
it was like a snowball rolling downhill. It just gathered strength and speed. Um, right. And uh, we did go through some, there were character sketches before the actual paper cutouts happened. And we went through some different iterations of whether or not she should be facing, uh, you know, full face or if she should be in profile, if she should be smiling. Um, I think it, it would be so hard I, to be a cover designer because you basically have to like, um, embody an entire book in an image in a single image um, but I think I think we hit I think we got this one right I think yeah it's it's so good it's just it just pops in a really really wonderful way like it it makes you want to like pick it up I mean we shouldn't judge books by the covers of course but you it makes you want to pick it up and, and find out more about um, what is happening in the book I'm I'm curious you know you had said um, how part of this was um, Azumi sort of discovering herself and, and finding like who she is between these two cultures. Um, were any of her experiences drawn from your own experiences? Yeah, a lot of them were. I mean, her whole character arc um, is very much reflective of my own personal journey as a Japanese American. Um, so, you know, I've never feeling Japanese enough, never feeling American enough. I've always felt like I, you know, have been bifurcated. Um, and uh, that's been very difficult and it was very difficult growing up. Um, and then there's other little things too that are peppered in there. Like the Asian girl gang is based on uh, a real friendship group that I had when I was in middle school. Um, and, you know, Azumi talks about not being able to find a keychain with her name on it because she has, a, you know, a Japanese name. And that is a direct experience that I had um, when my family went on vacation once and I wanted a keychain so bad, but I couldn't find my name on it. Um, so those little things popped up throughout the text. Um, and those were, you know, true life experiences for me. If you want to pivot slightly, because I saw on your website that you had once worked as an entomologist, aka bug catcher. I'm just curious, how did you get into that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could talk about bugs. <laughs> I know that's not the intent of this podcast. No, I mean, I think that's one of those like fun facts. I'm like, I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody who has done that before. <laughs> Um, so I was a science biology major in college, um, and they didn't have at the university that I went to, they didn't have an entomology focus, which shockingly enough, not a lot of universities do. Um, and, uh, but I did, uh, that was kind of my focus without it being like a major. Um, and I, I mainly studied, uh, I don't know how nitty gritty you want me to get into this, but it's fine. I studied uh, soil arthropods and environmental change. Um, and I had like this working theory that uh, bugs were kind of the canary in the coal mine for environmental mm. change. Um, but from that, I worked at a zoo and I was like the insect zookeeper for a little while too. Um, and so I've just always had kind of a fascination with bugs and, um, and, you know, these little lives they lead. Yeah, I, uh, I'm the opposite. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I don't know if you're at all familiar with Animal Crossing, but I'm like Blathers who runs the museum where I freak out anytime somebody like brings a bug anywhere near me. I'm like, no, please go away. So it's just, I think that's fascinating that, um, 
it's always so interesting to hear that. I mean, like your your logic, I mean, like that theory actually makes perfect sense to me when you explain it about how bugs would be um, so-called canaries in the coal mine about environmental change. I was like, oh yeah, that actually, I buy that. I don't know anything about bugs, but that okay. makes sense to me. <laughs> um, so you're not the first one who's told me, sadly enough, that they don't love bugs as much as <laughs> you do. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not terribly brokenhearted, but um, I'll tell you one more thing too, and I'm not sure if this will give you, give you an okay. but I like, so I had for a while before I had kids, I don't have them anymore. Um, although I think my kids would love them now. I kept giant cockroaches. Like I had, I had them as pets. I know. <laughs> um, and yeah, I kept them as pets. They were, they were great. And they, they're Madagascar hissing cockroaches. And so they moved very slow and, um, but they were, they were fun. <laughs> no, I mean, you know what? <laughs> they were, no, if they make you happy as pets, I think that's fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, at some point you have to sort of like come to peace with bugs because they exist and like we're in their world. And, you know, I still don't like when I have like a wasp buzzing near me and <laughs> how centipedes move at a rate that is so fast it feels like aliens but I know yeah. that they're good for the environment so I will let them move very quickly it yeah. scares me <laughs> yeah um we used to get I'll tell you one more thing um that uh I think people have always found interesting when I worked at the zoo like the zoo is kind of a catch-all for um like arthropods uh that like hitch rides on trucks planes and boats <laughs> and so like sure. there were a couple of times once or twice where I was like called out to go to a grocery store and catch like a spider that had like shown up in a bunch of bananas stuff like that um and so it's pretty crazy but it was also kind of it was a fun part of the job too I felt like kind of like a hero <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, back to Tokyo Ever After, I think I read somewhere, are you working on a sequel? So I am, and it's finished. It's with my editor now. Um, and I get, uh, I've gotten a lot of questions of whether or not it will be a different, following a different character in the Imperial family, but it will be following Izumi again. So it'll be um, from her voice and uh, she'll still be at the Imperial family, uh, Imperial Palace, sorry. Um, and just facing new challenges. We might see some, uh, some stateside people come over to Japan and visit and uh, there will be more kissing and romance and, and all the good fun stuff. All the good fun stuff, yeah. Uh, you know, you see yourself, I mean, you've written, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, you've written a couple of different books and they're all sort of different genres. Um, do you see yourself continuing to kind of bounce around in the, the genres? That's a good question. I'm pretty committed to contemporary right now. Um, I just wrote actually a women's fiction novel that was contemporary. Um, and I'm very much interested still in exploring the Japanese American identity, all the versions of it. Um, and that's really what's driving me right now. So I think for the time being, at least the next year or two, um, it'll be, you'll see more contemporary works from me. Never say never though. Never say never. <laughs> Well, excellent. Um, well, Tokyo Over After is delightful. I really hope all listeners um, pick it up. 
Again, it has a gorgeous cover that will pull them in. But um, finally, what do you hope readers take away from reading Tokyo Ever After? Um, you know, there's, I think there's layers built in there. So I think I would love readers to, you know, take away a feeling of, you know, fun and being swept away to a different country, especially right now when we can't travel so much. It's so fun to just kind of be an armchair traveler. Um, and then second to that, I like to think of stories as windows and mirrors. So either you can see yourself reflected in the text or you can see through the text, to, you know, through a different perspective. And going back to, you know, the Asian American experience, this is one version of it. Um, and so I hope, you know, it, uh, readers have a sense of empathy for, you know, what some Asian Americans go through. That's wonderful. Emiko, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.